Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Like FDR or JFK, Ronald Reagan has become more of a symbol for many Americans than a flesh and blood person. For some, he's the embodiment of all that's good in America, while for others, he's the very opposite. But beyond the political divides, who was Reagan the man? My guest today spent five years researching and writing an epic nonpartisan biography that seeks to bring the abstraction of Reagan back down to earth. His name is Bob Spitz, and his biography is Reagan, an American Journey. We begin our conversation discussing how how Reagan's hard scrabble childhood in the Midwest and his family's staunch progressive politics influenced his early political outlook. Bob then shares how a young Ronald Reagan showed signs of becoming the great communicator as a young man, and how his charm and innate talent for speaking led to a successful career in radio and the movies. We then discuss why Reagan went from being a true believing Democratic New Dealer to being a leader in the burgeoning conservative movement in the 1960s. Bob then delves into Reagan's leadership style as governor of California and president of the United States and the important role Nancy Reagan played throughout his political career. We end our conversation discussing Reagan's ultimate legacy. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash Ronald Reagan. Bob Spitz, welcome to the show. My pleasure. Great to be here. So uh, you've got an interesting career. You, you've been in the music industry. You've represented the Partridge family, Bruce Springsteen, Elton John. Then you've parlayed that to a writing career where you've written biographies about the Beatles, history of Woodstock. But now you've got this tome of a biography about President Ronald Reagan. So how did you go from writing about, I don't know, pop culture music to President Reagan? Well, it wasn't just music. In between the Beatles and uh, Reagan, I was Julia Child's biographer. And, and so when it came time to look for a new subject after I was Julia's biographer, I thought that you could draw a straight line through the Beatles and Julia through two elements that each of them had. And that was, number one, they were beloved. And number two, they had changed the culture. So I was looking to, uh, to, to find a subject who, who em- embraced both of those qualities And the list was incredibly small. I mean, I had thought for six months and gone through uh, all the Kennedy Center nominees, the Medal of Honor winners, and people who embraced both qualities, both elements, were far and few. And my wife said to me, what about Ronald Reagan? 
And I, uh, I took a big swallow and thought, I can't do this. I'm a lifelong Democrat. I never voted for a Republican in my life. How was I, I didn't vote for Reagan twice. How was I going to write a biography of Ronald Reagan? But he, he embodied both of those qualities. I mean, I was so intrigued by the fact that so many people in this country considered him a beloved individual, whether or not they agreed with his policies. I mean, he's cited by Barack Obama and Bill Clinton as, as a beacon almost all the time. And, and he, he certainly changed the culture. And, and so I thought, I'm going to look into this a little more. And what I did, I found a subject who led one of the most remarkable lives that I had ever encountered and was so rich for a biography and I couldn't resist. Okay. So, you know, besides, you know, you, you said you're a lifelong Democrat, like you never thought you'd write about Ronald Reagan who's be somewhere in this icon of uh, the Republican party. But besides that, I mean, Ronald Reagan, I mean, he's more symbol than man almost. Right. I mean, was that was that part sort of trepidation for you about this project? Like, how do you you get to the like to the actual person, Ronald Reagan? Yeah, well, he had you know he had grown into myth, and uh, that's always difficult for a biographer to penetrate. Uh, I have the same thing with with the Beatles when I uh, became their biographer. You, you just have to do the, the the legwork. I mean, it's it's it took me two and a half years of talking to three hundred and fifty people. And, and visiting all the places where Reagan grew up and going through all of his personal files until a, a picture of a personality emerges that you know to be true. And, and that happens with almost any biography that, that anyone encounters. If you do the legwork, soon enough you can peel off the, uh, the armor and get to the inner core of the person. And that's what I was striving to do through all my work. So let's talk about Reagan's childhood and youth. How did his upbringing late, you know, influence his later political career? Yeah, well, that's, that's a good question. He, Ronald Reagan had one of the most humble backgrounds I'd ever encountered. His father was a reckless alcoholic. His mom was a pious, religious person. They, always, they, they often had to move under the cover of night when the rent came due. Reagan and his brother often had to share just a single bed. So, you know, he what he did was he, he, he kind of receded into his own little life world and blocked out everybody else around him. This allowed him to, to really, you know, have a, a fantasy life. He read a lot. He always reached for the stars. And, and this is a man, again, who came from a humble background, but wound up being not just the voice of the Midwest on the radio, but a Hollywood movie star, the governor of California and the president of the United States. And I think a lot of it had to do with him protecting himself from from his surroundings as, as a young kid. He also went to a college that was well beyond his means. He was basically a C and a D student and relied on his charm and his personality and developed that. And I think, you know, he had he had a strong religious background from his mom. He had a core set of principles that he always held dear to himself, and and he traded on all of that to uh, to become the man he did. And what's interesting too about his childhood, you talk a lot about too. You know, his dad was uh, a diehard Democrat, and his mom. You know, you said she was pious, but she was a part of a church that was a part of the social gospel movement, where they you know, kind of became the progressive movement. Exactly right. And Reagan grew up as as a Democrat, as a progressive liberal, 
who uh, idolized Franklin D. Roosevelt. And what he idolized most of all was Roosevelt's social embodiments. He, he loved the fact that uh, Roosevelt uh, honored the working man, loved unions. He, he hated the oil barons and, and, and the bankers. And, and that he uh, gave money for, to welfare for people. And so Reagan, you know, had, had a lot of that background in him that he did get from his parents. And it was all kind of a liberal, per, a liberal uh, uh, ethic. Well, I mean, so Reagan became known as the great communicator. That's his nickname. I mean, were there signs of that as a child or a young man that he had this ability to connect with an audience and, and just really say the right thing at the right time? Yeah, he really learned that in college. You know, he got called on as a freshman to lead a student protest that basically shut down the university. And it was right at that moment that he developed his voice. I mean, he really felt that he could stand up in front of a crowd and sway them with his with his rhetoric. And that was something he traded on again and again. You know, he did the same thing after college as a as a radio personality. He really learned how to use that voice and to communicate. And how did he, so yeah, so he gra- did he graduate college? Did he finish? He did finish college, yeah. He did four years of college, uh, eat through, just barely eat through, and and decided that he, he wanted something greater in life and he had to leave the small town that he was brought up in, Dixon, Illinois, and, and move further west. And, and so he wound up in, in Iowa in Davenport behind a radio microphone. And how did that happen? Did it, was that sort of accident or was he very persistent? Like he knew that's what he wanted to do and he just put it, you know, he hit the pavement with resumes and just said, can I get a job? Yeah, no, it was, it was sheer fortitude and sheer dreaming. He decided he wanted to be a, a radio broadcaster, a sports broadcaster. So he got in the car with his resume and, you know, he, he went straight to Chicago, you know, right to the top. And, and basically, the woman who was at the reception desk at, uh, MB, at the NBC affiliate there said, look, you know, you're going about this all the wrong way. It's like baseball. You start in the minor leagues. So find a small country station, get a job, get your foot in the door there, and, and see if you can, uh, you know, begin your career that way. And so he did. He found a small station in Davenport. He wedged himself in the door. And before he knew it, he had wedged the rest of himself in as well. And, and he was off and running uh, to a great career that if it had only stopped in radio, he would have had a, a very, very successful career. Right. And I, I imagine calling sports games, that's what he became known for. You know, he learned how to communicate and improvise on the fly, right? He did. He, he actually broadcast the games, the Cubs and the White Sox games, every night to as wide an audience as eight different states without ever having seen one of those games. He got uh, all of the information on what was going on on the field through teletype dispatches that he would then have to translate and then broadcast as if he were you were listening to it as a live game. And so he had to be incredibly creative absolutely dramatic and and really know how to put something like that across. And I think you mentioned one moment, like the tel- one game, like the teletype machine stopped working. <laughs> so he had to just pretty much make something up for like half an hour. He had the guy fouling off ball after ball. He kept watching the teletype machine to see if it would come back on. He'd have the manager go out to the pitching mound to talk to the, the pitcher. Then there were more foul balls. 
And finally, when it came back on, Reagan found out that the guy had fouled out on the first pitch. <laughs> so he, and at this time, I think another important thing, this, he wasn't Ronald Reagan. He was known as Dutch Reagan. That's how he introduced himself. And he was known professionally on radio for a while, correct? Yeah, absolutely. He had only ever been called Dutch as a kid in high school and college. And that's what his listening audience knew him as, too. Never, ever called him uh, himself Ronald, nor did his parents call himself Ronald. Well, let's talk about when he became Ronald Reagan. So we all know Ronald Reagan's like the one president that was a movie star before he became president. Right. How did that happen? Because he's, this is a guy who's in radio. How did he get in front of the silver screen? You know, he, he accompanied the Cubs out to uh, spring training. They were training on Catalina Island off the coast of uh, Los Angeles. And he knew a, a young woman from Iowa named Joy Hodges, who was singing with big bands in L.A. and had dinner with her. And she said, you know, you ought, to, uh, you ought to try out at Warner Brothers. You ought to try out for a screen test in the movies. You have what it takes, except for those glasses you're wearing. And she took the glasses off him and said, don't ever put them on again. And right there he, at that dinner, he said, OK, call your agent, see if you can get me a uh, screen test. He had a screen test two days later, and about four days later, as he was heading back to uh, Dick, uh, to Davenport with the the Cubs, he got a telegram that Warner Brothers wanted to sign him to a contract, and and that was the beginning of the beginning. So it was sort of like something kind of tumbled, you know, stumbled into accidentally. Was this like, I mean, did he have a goal? Like he thought maybe one day I could do movies because he acted as a child. He did. He acted as a child and he acted in college. And in fact, he was in a competition at Northwestern University and won. And, and one of the, uh, the drama coaches there said, you know, you have a really good future on the stage. So Reagan was always thinking there might be something bigger than, you know, just being behind a microphone. So, you know, he, he was eager. He had that at the back of his mind. And I think when he had dinner with Joy Hodges that night, he had his eye on Hollywood. So Reagan started in movies, but he never became like a leading man. He was always in these B movies. What kept him from you know becoming a star? Because it seems like the way you describe, it, like that's what he wanted so bad, and he was always like in his grasp, but like just a little out of reach. Well, what kept him from being a movie star was lack of talent. You know, he he, he was kind of wooden. He was charming. He had that you know that look that. Um, best friends have um, in, in the movies, but he, he had no depth as an actor. And, and that always kept him from getting the roles that he coveted. I mean, you know, he, he worked next to Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland and Betty Davis and some of the bigger, Bill Holden, who was his buddy, some of the bigger stars, but he, he didn't have what they had. And, and I think Jack Warner knew that. He had two opportunities in King's Row and in Newt Rockney, All-American. And, and, you know, he was serviceable, but not star quality. So, uh, but one thing that came out of the movie business is that he became president of the Screen Actors Guild. What was his stint there like? And how did that spark, you know, did it cause a spark for his political career later on? Well, his stint there was brilliant. I mean, he, he wasn't just the president of the Screen Actors Guild for one term. He won for six terms running. And he did that because he had a real way of communicating with the actors who he represented. And he had an incredible sense of politics. He knew how to play them. 
Ronald Reagan was a political animal, not just around his dad when they talk politics, but in college and especially in Hollywood. On the set, uh, when, when they broke between each scene, Reagan was an incredible chatterbox. I, I have the distinct pleasure of going to Paris and doing a, a, a huge interview with Olivia de Havilland, who was <laughs> just on the cusp of her 100th birthday, and, and remembered so well how Reagan would talk politics between every scene. He was obsessed with it. In fact, when they went to the commissary for lunch, Actors would wait to see where he sat before going into the commissary, so they didn't wind up next to him and getting an earful of politics. So politics was always on Reagan's mind, and that worked in conjunction with his presidency of the Screen Actors Guild, especially during one of the more uh, violent times in Hollywood during the strikes and the blacklist. And, and he, he knew how to wend his way through those, those particular uh, obstacles. And, and that really uh, helped him later on when it came time for politics. Right. I mean, I think in the book you talk about, he stopped being it and then they asked him to come back because he was just, everyone thought he did a good job at what he did. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, he, there was, uh, he, was, he was actually the president for five terms running. Then he took a hiatus thinking, I'm never going back to that. But they really needed him around the time of the blacklist, and he agreed to come back and uh, represent the Guild again. So as you mentioned, when we talked about earlier in the show, he started off as a true-believing Democratic New Dealer. But now he became this, he's this conservative icon. When did his shift in politics start happening? Was it around this time in the movies? Yeah, oh, absolutely. It happened during the, uh, during the, uh, the, the, the violent strikes, Olivia de Havilland actually set this out for me uh, in in perfect terms. The different committees in Hollywood at the time there were there were many activist committees were being infiltrated by people who believed in in the communist uh, principles, and Reagan Reagan saw how that really broke up meetings and and interfered with uh, studio politics and felt that communists were, were an evil group. And so his politics started to skew from the left to the right. Also, Reagan had made a serious mistake. He, uh, when he went into the army, he had heard, uh, during World War II, he had heard that the soldiers during World War I, when they came out, when the war had ended, were forgiven their taxes. So Reagan decided to take the chance and not pay his taxes, thinking that, of course, it'll be the same during World War II. And it wasn't. And he wound up with a $93,000 tax bill and never forgave Uncle Sam. He always felt Uncle Sam was picking his pocket, that big government was starting to interfere in his life, even though it had been his mistake. But that also helped skew his politics from the left to the right as well. So by the time uh, he was finished as a Hollywood star around the mid-1950s, Ronald Reagan was seriously looking at the Republican Party and had left the Democratic Party behind. Well, you mentioned that stint in the Army. I didn't know that about Reagan, that he served in the Army. What, what did he do during World War II? Uh, actually, he, uh, he, he never left Hollywood. He was stationed in Hollywood with something called the First Motion Picture Unit, and their job was to make uh, training films for the GIs. Uh, and in fact, 
it, it became more serious than that. Reagan uh, famously narrated a film that was made in a Hollywood studio during World War II that had a simulation of Japan. And uh, as the camera flew over the simulation, it guided the pilots later on that would drop the, uh, the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try Fast Growing Trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. 
Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to the show. Wow. So his career as a Hollywood star ended in the mid-1950s. What did he do between that time? Was he kind of, did he have like a period sort of like out in the wilderness for a while? Uh, Not so much the wilderness. Uh, He had a few interesting things. The first thing that befell him when he didn't know what was going to happen in his life was that he took a a two-week job as the host of a corny vaudeville show in a Las Vegas casino. And he was despondent doing something like that. Uh, but he he got an offer during this time to do television, and it was a place that he didn't want to go. He felt that once an actor did move to television, because it was such a fledgling new thing, that it it would be it would cheapen his career. He still had hopes that he could revive his career, although he never did. But but an offer came his way to be host of GE's General Electric's. Sunday night anthology drama series called GE Theater, in which he could act as well on several episodes. But the most important thing about that offer was GE also asked him to be its ambassador. And that would be to travel during the weeks to its big plants all over America and talk to the workers about what was going on at GE and find out what was going on in the workers' lives. Reagan absolutely loved this job. He did it for several years. And again, if he had only done this for the rest of his life, I think he would have been a happy buckaroo. But this is where he became um, really involved with with the working class and what was going on with their lives. And he found that they were very much like the people he grew up with in Dixon, Illinois, people who were struggling to make ends meet. He listened to what they were doing. He listened to... Uh, what their dreams and their desires were. And right there in that job at GE, he really started to formulate his, his, his foundation as, as a, uh, a politician later on. Yeah, and besides that, he would also do what you call it the mashed potato circuit. He'd go and do these you know, off-the-cuff speeches. I think there also he sort of honed that, that ability to communicate on the fly, but also connect with an audience instantly. Yeah, Reagan loved speaking. I mean, he spoke to the people with the GE plants. He would also always gather a group around and talk to them. But then, as you said, at night, he would go out and speak to civic organizations, you know, the American Legion or the Elks or, or whoever paid, uh, paid for his, uh, his services. And he developed a real, he was a raconteur. 
He loved telling jokes. He told some Hollywood stories. But then he would gravitate to politics and what he what he, he thought was going on in the world and what he felt needed to change. And, and audiences were kept in rapt attention. So he uh, was the spokesperson for GE during the 50s. And how, when, how long did that stint last? Did it go into the 60s? Yeah, that, last, they, you know, that lasted five or six years. Yeah, into the 60s. Exactly right. So how did becoming governor of California end up on his radar? <laughs> well, you know, he, he became such a good speaker that he had attracted a, a small group of businessmen in California where he lived who thought that, you know, he had some he had something to give in, in a larger way, in a political way. And these were wealthy businessmen who were either in they, they controlled all the car dealerships or they had oil uh, or, or beer manufacturing. And they, they later became, of course, his kitchen cabinet his famous kitchen cabinet, but they asked him to give a speech in 1964 for Barry Goldwater as Goldwater's candidacy was really tanking. And it was a half hour speech on TV, which they paid for. And it was all there in that speech, the charisma, the charm, the wisdom, the connection. Reagan had it all. And those businessmen looked at him and they thought, We've got the wrong politician on the ticket. And they decided then and there to run Ronald Reagan for governor of California. Well, before we get to a governor, we got to talk about a person that played a huge role in Reagan's life. And that was Nancy Reagan, his wife. Se- his second wife. Well, his way. second wife, right. Yeah, we didn't talk about his first wife, the actress Jane Wyman. And was really crushed when that marriage fell apart. But then he meets Nancy. And, you know, one thing, if you look at pictures of Ronald and Nancy, you always see Nancy kind of looking up wistfully with doe eyes at Ronald Reagan. But this picture you painted, like she's, she was also very assertive and very powerful. So what, how did, what was Nancy's role in Reagan's political career? Well, you know, <laughs> it's funny. When I first, when I wrote about the Beatles, I knew that the boogeyman of the story was Yoko Ono. Right. And boy, was I wrong. She was not. In fact, she was a strong, assertive woman. And when I when I began working on the Reagan biography, I thought, aha, well, I understand. The boogeyman of this book is going to be Nancy Reagan. And I was wrong again. As you said, she was strong. She was assertive. She had his back throughout his entire life. When they got to the White House later on, Nancy had one goal and one goal only in mind, and that was to protect her husband's legacy. She wanted him to be known after his presidency as a man of peace. And from the very first day they set foot in the Oval Office, she hounded him uh, incessantly to make peace with the Soviet Union and to reduce the threat of nuclear war. And uh, I think after all my research, I can safely say that we have Nancy Reagan to thank for Reagan meeting with Gorbachev and indeed reducing the threat of, of nuclear annihilation and, and d- the dismantlement of the Soviet empire. So, you know, circling back to his career as governor, what was his leadership style like as an executive? Well, you know, he didn't really know what he was doing as governor to begin with. He, he really was just winging it. And so at the beginning, the first two years were a little chaotic. But then he he hit a stride, and and here's what he discovered. He had a mostly Democratic 
assembly in, in his legislature. And of course, he was a Republican. And he realized that the only way he could get anything done was through compromise and cooperation. And so Reagan frequently reached across the aisle to work with the Democrats and to get bills passed. And this was something that occurred not only in his governorship, but in his presidency as well, because he wound up with the Democratic legislature and and Tip O'Neill as a very strong Democratic Speaker of the House. They disagreed on everything, but Reagan would reach across the aisle, work with O'Neill and get things done. And he really learned this as the governor of California. You know, he, he... he decided that he, he, he had to represent everybody in his state. That is unheard of today. Well, so let's talk about his political career as president, because I thought this was one of the most fascinating sections, you know, leading up to his uh, nomination as president in 1980, because there's this, uh, this huge amount of fierce politicking going on in the Republican Party. The Republican Party was sort of undergoing a identity crisis, we can call it that. And Reagan steps in. And he was kind of a long shot at first, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a long shot. I mean, you know, everybody thought of him as just a, an actor who wanted, who was trying to become president. And they were also worried about his his kind of conservative politics, which were were new. That that was a, a, a new a new strain of of republicanism that hadn't been uh, in the White House before. And and so, yeah, he was a long shot. I mean, the person who wasn't the long shot was George Bush. George Bush had won the, um, the Iowa primary, the Iowa caucuses, and was just about to sweep the, uh, the New Hampshire primaries as well until a famous debate with Reagan in which Bush fell apart and, and Reagan's candidacy took off. So he, he was a dark horse, but, but once he won the nomination. Actually, he was still a dark horse. People expected Jimmy Carter to uh, to win a second term, but the uh, Iranian hostage crisis had really uh, torpedoed Carter's presidency. Well, another thing we didn't mention this, he, he challenged Gerald Ford, right? When Gerald Ford ran? Yeah, that was in 76. He ran against Gerald Ford. Absolutely unheard of to challenge an incumbent in your own party. Reagan almost won the nomination. It was only uh, at the last minute that that he didn't, and Ford really never forgave him for that. And so when Ford when Ford heard that he was running again, he tried to offer him a an ambassadorship somewhere to get Reagan out of the way, or a cabinet post that would have you know put him in a corner somewhere. But Reagan was too savvy to to fall for that. And you mentioned that okay, going back to that debate, I know we're kind of jumping around with George Bush. That was that famous debate where. Like Reagan's uh, campaign paid for it, and that's where he had said that famous line, "Like I paid for this mic microphone," and for some reason it brought down the house. Uh, yeah, it was it was a very famous debate. It occurred toward the end of the uh, New Hampshire primary when he and George Bush were running neck and neck. It was a tumultuous night, and in the book I really dramatize it because it was full of drama. Bush tried to keep the other candidates who were running. Bob Dole, Howard Baker, Phil Crane, and John Anderson off the debate stage. And Reagan wanted them on the debate stage. And in the band room at the school where they were holding the debate, I mean, they were all screaming at each other. It was incredible. Bush was on the stage waiting for Reagan, and and Reagan brought up the other people, the other candidates on stage. 
And Bush's people would not let them speak. Bush wouldn't even look at Ronald Reagan. He wouldn't look at him in the eye. And so once the other candidates left, and it was just Bush and Reagan on this uh, dais, Bush fell apart. And, and Reagan kind of never forgave him for that. When it came time to choose a vice president later on, and George Bush was the obvious choice, Reagan's mind flashed back to that night in New Hampshire and thought, I don't want a guy who falls apart as my vice president. But they, they struck a deal after that. And of course, you know how that turned out. You know how it turns out. So he becomes president. What was his leadership style like as president? Was it similar to what he did as governor of California, sort of delegate, uh, very hands off? Yeah, absolutely. You know, Reagan, Reagan was not the smartest man in the room and he knew it. You know, he, his ego wasn't so big that he, he couldn't hire experts and rely on their advice, which is what he did. He had a fantastic chief of staff in Jim Baker. He had Ed Meese advising him on his politics, Mike Deaver in the Oval Office, who handled, handled all of his personal things. And he deferred to these people, especially to his national security people. He listened to them. He sifted through information. He chose the best people. And often he changed his mind on, based on what they had told him. And, and Reagan, again, and I can't emphasize this too strongly, was willing to reach across the aisle to make compromises, to bring the Democrats into his fold, and to get things accomplished. And he did. There was no infighting. You know, they disagreed on policy, uh, Reagan and the Democrats, but there was no fighting or hurling insults or disparaging someone's character or i mean there was just none of that they they worked arm in arm yeah i mean it seems like one of reagan's things you talk about throughout the book was this idea he was dedicated to decency just american values and like he wanted americans to feel that right and inspire americans to to reach for that yeah i I think if, if you know you could point to one thing that reagan accomplished more than anything else he restored the morale of americans for their government and and their leaders. And that in itself is is a remarkable accomplishment. And another interesting fact about President's uh Reagan's presidency is like just a few months he had an assassination attempt. And I didn't I didn't know how close this guy was to dying. I mean it was pretty bad, right? Yeah, again, in the book, I was lucky enough to be able to speak to all the doctors and the nurses who had uh attended him while uh he uh, was in the hospital. And they told me uh, the specific instances of, of how close that bullet was to his heart and, and how difficult it was to remove it. There was a chance he was not going to make it. And this was only, you know, this was a month after he had taken office. That's how quickly that this had happened. So um, I, I think that assassination attempt changed his entire perspective. It really put him in touch with his own mortality. And he realized that he had some some quick work to do. And, and he had to, again, reach out to the Soviets and, and try to find a way to make peace. And again, exercising that great communicator improvisation ability. And his wife comes in, sees him on the, the bed, and he, he says famously, honey, I forgot to duck. Yeah, that was actually a Joe Lewis line. Uh, Joe Lewis used that when he was knocked out in his famous championship fight. 
And Reagan, you know, Reagan, the sportscaster, knew that line and knew, knew when to use it. So Reagan's presidency, there were some controversies. There's the Iran-Contra affair. The, the economy started slowing down a bit. There was the strike with the air traffic controllers that he had to shut down. But despite all these controversies, Reagan remained a pretty popular president throughout his entire career. I mean, what do you think the appeal was? It was just his ability to connect and communicate with people. Yeah, you know, uh, he was an actor who had become president. And so he knew how to use the camera. He knew how to talk to people. And and he also strove for a middle ground. You know, he was a pragmatist. He, he was conservative, but he was not a what you would call a right winger. He was a man who, who kind of hewed to the middle. And, and I think, you know, if he looked at Bill Clinton's uh, candidacy years later, Clinton as a Democrat also hewed to the middle. I mean, that was his secret. And that's why his presidency was so successful. Yeah, Reagan Reagan knew that he was the, the president of all Americans, not just a few Americans. And, and so uh, I think he tried to do things that were not too radical or too unexpected or too self-serving. And that's why when an ardent Democrat like myself, who never voted him, looks back on his career, I have a little fondness for it. Would I vote for him today? Absolutely not, because those aren't my politics. I don't follow those policies. But do I respect him as a man and a leader? Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, I mean, during those times as uh, as president, he gave some really famous speeches. We've done some articles like the most famous speeches in American history, and Reagan's challenger speech always comes up. His speech about tearing down the wall always comes up. I mean, were those, I mean, did, did he write those himself, or were those sort of off the cuff, or he just, he, I'm going to go No, they, they, they weren't. They were written for him. But the secret was knowing how to deliver them. You know, you could write something for anybody. If they don't know how to deliver it and put it across and really sell their audience, then no matter what's on the printed page, you know, doesn't doesn't mean that much. Yeah, he had a way of communicating with his populace and and people loved him for it. And 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 I, I would say safely miss him for it as well. What was what were his last years like? Well, you know, his last years were, were hap- haphazard. He um, famously uh, came down with, with Alzheimer's disease. Um, I, I was actually very fortunate to be able to talk to the people who were in the room with him when they told him that he had it. Uh, I think it was always on the horizon for him. His mother had died of it. His father had it. His brother Neil had it, and I think Reagan always felt it was coming down the pike. It was no surprise. And, and for for several years after his presidency, he managed to go into the office every day and, and see people. Bill Clinton famously came to see him. George Bush came to see him often, and he had his finger on the pulse of Washington. But as the Alzheimer's took over, his mind started to slip away. And things got tough for him. And in the end, the last two years of his life, Nancy made sure that he was not seen publicly. And she really gave up her own life to sit and take care of him uh, until he died. You know, it's been 30 years since his presidency. Is there sort of a consensus developing amongst historians and political scientists about his administration or his legacy? I think more about his legacy than his administration. He's been cited in all kinds of polls as being one of the 10 great presidencies. 
I, I don't think it was really for what he did, although there was the dissolution of the, you know, the Soviet Union and really his peaceful negotiations with Mikhail Gorbachev. But, you know, his, his second administration was mired in Iran-Contra controversy, rightfully so. And he had really missed the boat on the AIDS crisis. He, he completely avoided it, which he even admitted was a huge mistake in his career. So I, I think his legacy, when you look at it, is more about Reagan the man than Reagan the president. But yeah, he's ranked, he's always ranked very high. What do you what do you hope people walk away with about Reagan after finishing your book? Well, I, you know, look, I mean, I, this is a man whose life framed the entire 20th century. So really, um, you it, it's as you mentioned at the outset, it, it's a great history lesson. You know, um, it's a great history lesson. There's a lot about Hollywood. There's a lot about growing up in the Midwest. And of course, the shift to the right and the rise of conservatism. So I, I think, you know, what I'd like people to walk away with more than anything is the fact that Ronald Reagan changed our lives and changed the culture. And, and this is how it happened. It's a real behind the scenes look at it. I was afforded the right to see his private papers, which nobody had ever seen before. These weren't the papers in the Reagan library. These were the ones that were in his office desk that he referred to often as he was governor and president. And so I hope that uh, you really get a sense of the man and, and what he accomplished in his life. Well, Bob, is there some place people can go to learn more about your work? Absolutely. Head to my website, bobspitz.com. You can find about out about all my books. And if you want an autographed copy, you can even get one through the website. So uh, it's a good place to start to look. Well, Bob Spitz, thanks for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Mine too. Thanks for, uh, for having me here. My guest today was Bob Spitz. He's the author of the biography, Reagan, An American Journey. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at bobspitz.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash Ronald Reagan, where you can find links to resources. We can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Check out our website, artofmanliness.com, where you can find thousands of articles on just about anything, social skills, personal finance, strength training, just life in general. Go check it out, artofmanliness.com. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay encouraging you to not only listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've learned into action. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world... 
Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.